0: Uh, Zach said, "I was going to preach." I am not a preacher. Uh, <clears throat> let me just welcome you again if you're visiting Tumble Bible Church. As uh, Zach said, I'm Carl Carr, I'm one of the elders here at, at TBC. Uh, if you're if you're visiting with us, it's it's our practice for our pastor to bring about two thirds of the sermon, and then others uh, on the leadership uh, team to bring the other one third. And since Skeet is out of town, this is obviously. Uh, one of those uh, days, uh, I, I am a uh, Sunday school teacher uh, by, pra- by a trade, not, uh, not a preacher. So we're going to treat this morning as one big old Sunday school class. So go ahead and get your Bibles out, get your pens out, and uh, we're going to go through a lot of verses and those kind of things uh, this morning. If you've been attending the last eight weeks, we uh, just finished the book of Hosea. And next week, we're going to begin a new series called Honest Faith from the book of Psalms. Uh, Today, sandwiched in between these two series on faith, we're going to talk about a passage from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. And I think this chapter is pivotal for believers in understanding their own faith. And indeed, I think it's pivotal in understanding the next uh, sermon series that we're going to do. Uh, as well. In Second Corinthians uh, chapter 10, in the first five verses, Paul addresses a key concept in regards to spiritual warfare. So, spiritual warfare is going to be the focus of our teaching today. I'm going to ask uh, Chip if uh, you would go ahead and come up and uh, open us in prayer this morning. Here's a mic if you want to do that. Let's pray. Oh God, heaven and earth be a uh... We owe it. Thank you, Chip. When I was, uh, I was at a continuing medical education conference this weekend in Galveston, and in the hotel you stay in, they provide you uh, with a free newspaper. I believe it's called the Galveston Times. <clears throat> and I have a clipping, uh, which is actually an advertisement from that paper. And it's advertising a store called The Witchery, Metaphysical Books and Gifts. And down there in the details, it says over 1,000 book titles to choose from. There we have gemstones, satanic jewelry, statuaries, crystals, incense, candles, herbs, essential oils, potion bottles, music posters, wind chimes, smudge sticks. Someone will have to explain to me what that is. Um, uh, ladies, they have handmade brooms. if you're tired of the airlines, um, mortar and pestles, cauldrons, classes on how to use all this, and psychic readings. And if you can't make it to their store, there's witcheryonline.com as well. Okay, this type of thing comes to mind for many people when they hear this term spiritual warfare. Uh, But this type of thing really has little to do with the Bible's description of spiritual warfare. Technically, in scriptural, in scripture, witchcraft is actually rebellion, not spiritual warfare. So, if you're going to follow along with me today, and if uh, if, if uh, you'd like, you can use the screen as well. Um, uh, we're going to go through and examine what the Bible has to say uh, about spiritual uh, warfare. So before we begin our central text in 2 Corinthians, I want to begin in Daniel chapter 10. So if you'll turn over to Daniel chapter 10 and drop all the way down to the 10th verse, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 14. So Daniel chapter 10. Before we read these extraordinary verses as you're turning to them, let me just introduce the contextual setting of this verse. In this passage, Daniel the prophet Has been fasting and praying for three weeks. And he's doing this because he's so concerned and broken about the plight of his nation, Israel, that's in captivity in in Babylon at the time. And after three weeks of praying, an angel appears to give Daniel a vision or a revelation about the future of Israel. And what this angel says is very interesting. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 10 and let's start in verse 10. It says, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. Pay close attention here. In in verse 13 it says, But the prince of the Persian, Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Now, jump down to verse 20. It says, So he said, Do you know why I have come? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince." Okay, you have in this passage from Daniel an angel that appears in physical form, physical form apparently to Daniel. Also in this passage you have Michael the archangel who is uh, described as, in this passage as a chief prince. And you have two other beings or, or demons described as the prince of Persia and the prince of, of Greece. This is such a notable passage because in this passage... Just for a second, the curtain between the physical realm and the spiritual realm is pulled back. Just for a moment, and we're allowed to glimpse into this spiritual world that we seldom consider. We see that in this world are angels and demons, and even more interesting is they appear to be organized with assignments of certain regions and even roles that for these demons that are assigned by Satan. Isn't it interesting that the demon, most powerful demon mentioned in scripture, other than Satan, has an assignment in the Middle East. (laughs) Now, remember that Satan himself is an angel himself, okay? And he hates God. He hates humanity as God's creation, and he especially hates God's people, God's followers, okay? So, as a result, Satan is in opposition to Christians, He is in opposition to you and me and everything that Christians believe. This opposition from Satan and his followers results in what we often refer to as spiritual warfare. So then, there's some important questions that I want to address uh, today. And so if you have your pen out, there's four questions. Number one, what exactly is spiritual warfare? In other words, what, what is the nature of this struggle? Number two, if spiritual warfare is actually taking place, where is the battlefield? And number three, what are Satan's current methods and strongholds? In other words, where has Satan been successful in this warfare? So what are Satan's current methods and strongholds? And then the last question that uh, we're going to ask is, in spiritual warfare, how do we as believers fight against Satan's methods or schemes, okay? So turn with me <clears throat> to the focal passage for today. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and it's just the five verse, first five verses, so verses 1 through 5. In this passage, Paul is addressing the church in Corinth, who have allowed a false prophet to bring legalism into the church. In other words, they were accepting this message that grace through faith was not enough for salvation, that what Christ did on the cross was good, but was not quite good enough to do uh, to do well enough for our salvation. And so, in other words, they were preaching a gospel of grace plus. So, beginning in verse 1, let's read together in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face and bold, went away. I I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. So pay attention to verse three through five here especially. It says, verse three, for we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine powers to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Okay, Paul here correctly ascertains that the struggle taking place there in the church in Corinth is a spiritual one. And I want to tell you, if you endeavor... As a believer, to share the gospel of grace, you are assured to face opposition. You will encounter spiritual warfare. So Paul then goes on to remind us that spiritual warfare, it's it's not like warfare in the physical realm. And the weapons are different somehow in spiritual warfare. What you will see in, in, in spiritual warfare, and it's really interesting, that words and ideas are of catamount importance in this realm. Don't misunderstand me on this point. Satan is a very very powerful and a very cunning being. But Scripture, again and again, shows us that the nature of warfare in the spiritual realm is not about force or power. Rather, it is persuasive. Just like Paul points out in verse 5, the strongholds of Satan... Are not power, but rather are arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the truth or the knowledge of God. So, in spiritual warfare, Satan is in opposition to the truth of the gospel. But if Satan is, okay, if he's so very powerful, why does he waste time this way? Why does he exercise warfare in this manner? If you're following along, jump way back to Isaiah chapter 54 and look at verse 17. Isaiah 54, 17. Verse 17 says, No weapon forged against you will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. What this verse says is our heritage from the Lord is that no weapon formed against you will prevail. Thank God, right? Satan cannot overpower us because God said so. In other words, God determines the rules of engagement. And if you belong to God, no weapon formed against you will prevail. This is why spiritual warfare is fought in this manner. You see, if Satan cannot defeat you by force, then his goal is to take us out of the fight before the fight even begins. Okay, so how does he do this? Turn with me again to another scripture. Look at John, Gospel of John. Chapter 8, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 44. In this passage, Jesus has been arguing or discoursing with the Pharisees. And Jesus says in verse 44, he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay, In this passage, Jesus clearly identifies Satan's method of spiritual warfare. And that is lies. Satan cannot oppose God or his people by force. So his most effective weapon is deceit or lies. Instead of fighting a fight he cannot win, Satan would rather just take you out of the fight. So Satan goes about with messages just for you. And he whispers these things in his ears like, you know, God can't exist. Look at this world. Or maybe if if God does exist, he's an absentee landlord. Or maybe this, God just wants to keep you down and keep you from enjoying your life. Or how about this? You can't believe that God will really forgive you for all that, do you? Or how about this one? God doesn't care about you or he wouldn't have let this happen to you. Or how about this one? God is really mad at you now and he would never listen to your prayers. Or how about his favorite? It says, you think faith alone is going to get you in heaven? And time and time again, Satan uses his go-to most effective weapon against God's people and humanity and that is lies. So if we know that this is how Satan and his followers will engage us, how then do we defend or fight against Satan? How do we fight back when Satan engages us in spiritual warfare? I want you to turn with me now to a very well-known passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6. Turn with me, Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 10. So beginning in verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Okay, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore... which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In the second half of verse 18 there, it says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and request." With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. If you're someone who underlines in their Bible, in verse 14, I want you to underline truth and righteousness. In, in verse 15, underline gospel of peace. In verse 16, underline faith. And in verse 17, underline salvation. And in verse 18, underline the word alert. Now, obviously, you could preach an entire sermon from this passage alone, and many have. But, but really, what does this passage say about how a believer can be successful against the schemes of Satan? Well, this passage describes for us a believer who stays close to God and to other believers. He is a believer that understands that his righteousness comes from Christ alone, and he holds close to this simple fact of the gospel. With an assurance of salvation by faith... Not works. The lies of Satan just bounce off of him. This person is alert and knows that when he hears something contrary to the truth of Scripture, then they are the lies of Satan. Again, now, Satan's main weapon against us in spiritual warfare is lies. How do we defend against him? We fight Satan spiritually with the truth. Guess what Satan's biggest fear is? What is his kryptonite? It's the Word of God. In the first half of Matthew chapter 4, I'm not going to have you turn there, but you can just jot it in the notes here. In first half of Matthew chapter 4, we see this played out when Satan attempts to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. And in that exchange, if you go and read that, you'll see that Satan prefaces everything he says with lies and half-truths. And in response, Jesus uses the same defense every time. What does he say? He says, it is written. It is written, and it is written. Jesus counters every lie of Satan with truth found in God's Word. Okay, y'all knew it was coming, but I have a story. When I was a pediatric resident at at Brook Army Medical Center, I I had a patient that I'm going to call Sydney uh, this morning. She was nine years old when I graduated uh, from that program there in San Antonio. Now, although she was nine when I left, her... Uh, story at our hospital went way back to when she was just uh, an infant and her medical problems were just beginning. Um, on several occasions uh, in the first few months of her life, uh, Sydney's mother called an ambulance to her home uh, saying that uh, her child had stopped breathing and she had had to perform CPR on uh, Sydney. She had just stopped breathing. Now, Sydney's mother was a nurse, and so she knew something about that. Uh, and so, each time uh, this would happen, only only because of Mom's heroic efforts did Sydney survive these episodes. Uh, the two of them even appeared in a newspaper article after Sydney had been resuscitated successfully. Uh, unfortunately, though, these episodes continue to happen, uh, one to two times per week. When Sydney would fall into a deep sleep, she would stop breathing. Mom would resuscitate her, call the ambulance, they would come, bring her, we'd observe her in the hospital, and she'd go home. After many such episodes, Sydney was diagnosed with this really rare syndrome called central hypoventilation, or Undine's Curse. And in Undine's Curse, when you fall into a deep sleep, you simply stop breathing. As a result, Sydney had a tracheostomy placed in her throat, and so mom would let her go to sleep in her bed, and as soon as she was uh, sleeping, she would hook her up to a ventilator at night so that if she stopped breathing, she wouldn't die. Well, this worked well for a while, but but soon after that, Sydney began to have a lot of other medical problems that were, A, difficult to understand, and, and, B, even more difficult to treat. Uh, the Army eventually did a compassionate reassignment of Sydney's father so they could be near all the specialists and doctors uh, who treated Sydney's multiple illnesses that she had on top of this Undine's curse. Uh, Sydney was even the subject of several articles published in some of the more prominent pediatric medical journals. Now, by the time I was at Brook Army Medical Center, uh, Sydney was seven years old. She had had 11 surgeries, 20 procedures, and was taking seven medicines every day. When I was in the fourth month of my second year of residency, Sydney's case got very interesting. Uh, at that time, when I was on the ward, she was in the hospital being evaluated because she continued to intermittently have gross amounts of blood in her urine no one on our team was able to figure this out because in between these horrendous bloody urine samples, she would have some normal ones uh, as well. Um, And so she was scheduled by our nephrologist to actually have a renal biopsy done, another procedure. On the day before this renal biopsy was uh, scheduled to take place, one of our female residents decided to take a shortcut one day and get changed in the patient's bathroom instead of in the resident's call room because she was running late. And as she was coming out of one of the stalls, what she saw stunned her because when she came out of the stalls, what she saw was Sydney's mother, who was a nurse and a diabetic, had lanced her finger and was standing there dripping blood into Sydney's urine sample. And she was doing that to make it appear abnormal or, or bloody. Well our, our entire department met that afternoon while the order was given for Sydney to have a staff member or a nurse present um, at all times. And during that meeting, which was a painful one, Sydney's chart for the last seven years of her life was then reviewed. And, and what we found hit everyone in the gut. Okay. It became clear that every one of Sydney's diagnoses were based almost exclusively upon the history given by Sydney's mother. So, if she was altering the urine samples, what else was she misrepresenting about Sydney's condition? Was it possible that all of it was a lie? Well, over the next six months, while while Sydney's mother uh, underwent psychiatric care and began to admit. What was going on? Sydney's medications and other treatments were slowly, one by one, removed by all the specialists. And they continued to rem- remove all of her medications and treatments until finally it came time that we were going to remove the ventilator at night. Uh, she had been, she had had a tracheostomy in her neck for seven years now. You can't imagine how this scared Sydney to be able to go to sleep and for us to tell her that we're not going to use a ventilator tonight. And so to convince her, what we actually did is hook up the ventilator and leave it off for a week and then tell her that it's not on and that you're fine. But it was a a very hard sell because Sydney had come to fully believe that she would die if she slept without a ventilator. Well, approximately... Four months after Sydney's mother was caught in the bathroom that day, Sydney was declared a normal little girl. And her mother was diagnosed with a syndrome, a psychiatric syndrome called Munchausen's by proxy. Okay. The point of this story is that based upon falsehoods perpetuated by Sydney's mother, many caring and sincere physicians had expended lots of efforts for years in complete futility. Why? Because all of their actions were based upon lies that they had believed. I'll turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. All right, I want you to get this point of the story. Many people today are living their life in utter hopelessness, And futility, because just like the doctors in my residency, everything that they believe and do is based upon a clever set of lies that Satan has perpetuated. This set of lies that Satan perpetuates is what Paul refers to in verse 4, if you look, as Satan's strongholds in people's lives. That's all those strongholds are. They're a set of lies that you've believed. Okay. Sadly, Satan has established many strongholds, even in the lives of believers. And Paul describes these strongholds in verse 5 as arguments and pretensions that are set in opposition to God's truth and the true gospel. Paul goes on to say that as believers... Get this, we have divine power in the Word of God to demolish these very strongholds that Satan has established. Okay, I want you to turn way back in the back of your Bible, almost to Revelations, and look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, <clears throat> almost to Revelation there in front of Jude. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. We're going to read those two verses, 19 and 20. So verse 19 says, we know that we are children of God. We also know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, even His Son, Jesus Christ. So when verse 19 says the whole world is under the control of the evil one, what does that really mean? I believe that in the context of spiritual warfare, I believe that for us, this means that we live in a culture and a world that has completely bought the lies of Satan. As we say in Texas, we have completely bought the lies lock, stock, and barrel. The United States has swallowed it whole. And as a result, the world we live in lives by a logic that's based upon lies authored by Satan. This is why, for so many living in this satanic paradigm, the truth of Scripture seems so radical. It seems so weird. Because the gospel is, by all intentions, countercultural. And from Satan's perspective, the gospel is a huge threat to all he has worked to establish. Okay, I have an, another slide I want you to look at. You guys have that one for me. See it. Good. Okay. <clears throat> this slide comes from uh, Howard Hendrick's books that we're about to start a study on, on on Monday nights called Living by the Book. If you look at this slide, you see that in this slide that the word of God leads to a transformed person. Okay? If you get a lot of transformed people, then you end up with a transformed community. And if you have a lot of transformed communities, then you have a transformed world. Uh, Dr. Hendricks, a a longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, he states that real-life change begins with the Word of God. He goes on to say that the Bible is one of God's divine instruments to change the world. But notice in the diagram, there is an order. Before the Word can change the world, the Word must first bring change in my life. It is at this crossroads where the truth of the Word of God transforms a person, where we find Satan countering the truth of God's Word with his schemes and lies. So there in the yellow, there on the slide, you see that Satan focuses much of his attack right there. By by doing so, you see, if he prevents the transformation if he prevents God's Word from transforming a person, then he also prevents transforming communities and transforming the world. And this gets right at the core of what spiritual warfare is all about. Okay. At the beginning of today's teaching, we asked four questions about spiritual warfare. And so let's, let's go back and answer them now from the text that we've looked at just today. Number one, what is spiritual warfare? Well, Scripture tells us that spiritual warfare is a conflict whereby the lies of Satan seek to undermine the truths of God's Word. Spiritual warfare is not fought with physical or even political forces. Spiritual warfare is an ideological battle in which the truth of God is in opposition to Satan's falsehood. Number two, If spiritual warfare is a battle, where's the battlefield? Well, spiritual warfare takes place in the battlefield of the mind. Satan seeks to capture, or at the very least, to insert doubt in your heart and mind in regard to the truth of God's Word. Number three, what are Satan's strongholds in spiritual warfare? Satan's strongholds are the areas in your life in which Satan has convinced you that his lies are true. He uses these strongholds to take you out of the fight. He uses these strongholds to weaken your witness. He uses this these strongholds to destroy your marriage. And on and on and on. In fact, without exception, get this, if you are struggling in some area of your spiritual life, Your struggle can be traced back to one of Satan's lies that he has convinced you is true. Number four. How do we now fight against Satan's lies and schemes? How do we respond when we are engaged by Satan's forces in a spiritual assault? Well, we saw in Ephesians chapter 6 that we only have one offensive weapon in this fight, and it's the Word of God. We respond Bond to the distractions, half-truths, and outright lies of Satan with the truth of God's Word. There's a hidden challenge there uh, in this answer. Uh, not to be judgmental, but I know some of you guys that I know in our body, you are going into battle in spiritual warfare with flamethrowers, and it's awesome. Unfortunately, I know some of, some of you others, and you're going into battle shooting rubber bands. That's why I take teaching uh, so seriously. All right, let's let's close today just by by talking about some applications from today's teaching. If you if you endeavor to do ministry in the body of Christ, you will soon discover that that as believers we have a we have a lot of struggles spiritually. And in many ways, one of Satan's strongholds that we talked about or or his most successful lies within the body of Christ is that as a church, we have come to believe that we can't really have victory in this life. If you are here today and you are struggling and feel defeated and your Christian walk seems dry and powerless, I challenge you this morning to trace back to the lie that you've accepted. If you look hard enough, you'll find it, I promise you. Okay, I want you to watch this. If you are here this morning, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, and you feel like you could never be good enough for Christ to accept you and for God to love you, I'm here to tell you that it is a lie. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, watch this. If you were here this morning and you say all this stuff is great, but I think there are many ways to God, many paths to find God. You know, I've heard this very thing from three different pulpits in the last six weeks. And I'm here to tell you that it is a lie straight from the mouth of Satan. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right? Well, watch this. Maybe you're here this morning and you have trusted Christ as your Savior, but you have come to believe that because of your sin, God would never want a relationship with you or to listen to you. You know, God must really be sick of you. I'm here to tell you that also is a lie of Satan. Satan. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, "Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand." I could go on and on and on because it seems that the lies of Satan are endless. But I'm going to stop there for this morning, and my challenge for you this morning is this: Where are you hurting and struggling today? Is it with kids? Is it with marriage? Is it with relationships? Is it anger, bitterness, pornography? Whatever it may be, the challenge this morning is to root out the lie in your life and claim God's truth. Cling to His promises and let it go. And God will do a great work in you. You can have victory. It says so in the truth of God's Word. So let's close in prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we come before you this morning just praising you, Lord, for the truths of God's Word. But for many of us here this morning, if we're truly honest, we are weighed down and just spiritually beaten down, Lord, because in somehow, some way, the craftiness of Satan, the father of lies, has convinced us, that some lies are true. Lord, may you use the Holy Spirit and use your power in the Word of God, Lord, to root those things out of our lives, Lord, so that we can live the life that you've created for us to live, that you've designed us before we were born to live. Just pray, Lord, that we would no longer let Satan use lies, Lord, to prevent us from what you've created us for. Lord, if there is someone here this morning has not accepted you as their Savior. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that the power of your Scripture from this morning would drive a wedge between them and the lies of Satan that have kept them from turning to you. And so I just lift up that person, Lord. Would you protect them? Would you banish Satan and all his lies? And may they accept you. Lord, we love you, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us courage, Lord, to take our stand, as it says in Ephesians chapter 6, so that all the schemes and all the lies of Satan, Lord, will just bounce off of us as we stay close to you and to one another. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.